Ken, let's go. The Kingdom of God series. We're continuing with the Kingdom of God series. Uh, last week, I jumped ahead to chapter 7, even though we were in the middle of chapter 3, simply because I had uh, the kind of week where I just didn't uh, have as much time as I needed to study for the next section of uh, chapter 3, which is going to be on creation and how creation is a theme uh all the way through Scripture. The creation isn't something that's just talked about in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, but creation is a major theme of Christ and a major theme of Paul and a major theme of the prophets especially, a uh, major theme in Job, and uh, which... Uh, so anyway, uh, so we jumped ahead to chapter 7, and, and I'm hoping to kind of finish chapter 7 today. So this is 7b. And we're looking at the three-legged foundational stool of God's kingdom restoration plan. Another way of saying this is uh, God gave man the initial commission, which he's never taken away. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, what some people call the dominion mandate or the dominion covenant, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to rule, to establish God's reign and rule and export it to all the earth. Now, prior to God creating man and, and woman and, and giving them that dominion mandate, he had already set a principle in all of creation that every seed brings forth its own kind. So whatever fruit you bear will be according to your image. One of the things you uh, have to ask yourself is, would I like to have kids like me? Would I like to have spiritual children who are like me? Uh, if, if you can't say yes to that, then you need to cry out to God and say, God, conform me to the image of Christ, heal my life, uh, deliver me from demons, uh, heal inner healings, sanctify my motivations and attitudes, teach me knowledge and wisdom, and whatever it takes, make me the kind of person that would like to multiply me. Because the goal of the Christian life is, there's many goals, of course, is to love God and know him and so forth. But Paul was able to say to the Corinthians, uh, arguably the most immature church in the, in the New Testament, he said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. He invited Timothy to follow his ways, his teaching, his purpose, his motivation, all those kinds of things. So... Um, when, you, when we're looking at these seven inst inevitable governmental institutions, what we want to say is that as, you, as, as we interact with those, we will conform them into the, to our image. And therefore, it's necessary that we are also always letting God conform us into his image uh, so that we, can, that we can actually influence these for good. That's really what it means to be salt. Salt stops corruption, and the degree of saltiness that we have is the degree that we'll salt with. If we, you know, that's one of the, the major issues of our time is for so many, many reasons, our division, uh, uh, it, so many reasons that it, the church has lost its saltiness. The church is no longer acting as any kind of a, of a godly moral restraint in our culture. And so as we talk about these seven institutions, what we're really talking about is God's steps, God's plans to redeem create the fallen creation. 
God doesn't just have some like, I'm going to redeem the fallen creation magic and uh, hit there, hit there, and so forth. There's a program. There's a plan, and the plan is to move through the seven institutions uh, in, uh, in an upward direction. So in other words, the first institution is the individual. We're going to look at that more deeply, what it means to have self-government today. The second institution is the family. We're going to try to say some things about the, redeeming the family today. Thirdly, our religious institutions. So in uh, those three, as we're going to look at today, are the three-legged stool that all redemption, all reconciliation, all di discipleship, all of the kingdom coming to earth goes through those three, that three-legged stool. The kingdom only comes to the earth as people as people come under those three-legged stools so um the fourth one of course is educational systems the fifth one is economic systems your vocation business monetary policy whether you have free enterprise or planned economies all those kinds of things media which uh in in our day influences social mores quite a bit uh, there's a there's a tie-in to media and, and Satan being called the prince of the power of the air and so forth and, and civil government okay most uh, in fallen man it's important to understand that fallen man always wants to change these things in backwards order fallen man wants to pass a law in the 1960s, these very enlightened, unelected people who were high, who were actually high priests, they actually wear priestly robes. They're called the Supreme Court, and it's a very religious institution that has come to have total power in our culture. And nothing what, what the what the Constitution intended, way beyond what the Constitution intended. And they decided the way to achieve integration was to uh, bus students across cities so that they forced schools to be integrated. And they said if the kids learn to be in the same school, black and white, when they're young, they'll all black and white will just be uh, living together in the same neighborhoods and going to the same churches and, and being in the, and it'll all be this utopian, happy wonderland, right? Well, obviously racial, racial division is worse now than it was then. And arguably, that was one of the contributing factors. But because you can't change uh, people's attitudes uh, about things that are in their heart by laws. Only Christ can bring about reconciliation. I'll know that the church of Jesus Christ is really starting to become restored when, when uh 93% of the churches in America are integrated instead of, um, instead of 7%. Then we'll know that, we, that we're starting to have what they had in the New Testament where Jew and Gentile were in the same church. And believe me, the social uh, distances and the, the prejudice and the, and the uh, things between Jew and Gentile were far deeper than our black-white uh, division in America. Yet the, the, the early church had none of that where there were separate churches. So uh, 
civil government in a lot of people when they think of civil government by the way and when i i go through this a lot when i'm teaching my classes at sinclair they think of the civil government as the national federal government only which is pretty sad because when i when i i'll ask them what do you think about checks and balances and they'll the some of them usually about 20 percent will know that there's some supposed to be some checks and balances between the three uh, talked about branches, uh, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, and they'll say that's the checks and balances. But they don't know that the the Constitution itself was supposed to be the first check, because <laughs> uh, that's out the window. Nobody follows that anymore. And they don't know that state governments and county governments and city governments were supposed to be the, a check. And the whole point of the Bill of Rights is the Bill of Rights protects the other six branches of government from the civil government encro from the federal government encroaching upon them. And, you know, no, hardly anybody has this kind of knowledge anymore that, you know, our founding fathers had enough biblical understanding, not that they were all Christians, but 35 out of 38 signers of the constitution were actually members of, of Orthodox Christian churches in good attendance and good standing who, who uh, knew their Bible more than most, most, uh, Christians today do and 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 use some of the principles from there and one of the things they they feared uh, they feared federal federal government uh, as becoming out of too big and out of order I, I in my opinion they didn't do enough uh, do it do and do enough in in the Constitution to keep that from happening we probably would have been better under the Articles of Confederation but that's another whole subject in itself but uh, you don't get taught that in schools today but the point is simply that there are other governments there's city governments there's neighborhood watches there's the parent teacher association there's you know there's uh, the priority boards there's you know uh, government is not only the national federal government, which has become this behemoth, huge mega thing in our culture. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. But humanistic man always wants to change things from the top down, from passing laws from the outside, instead of changing things from the inside out, from the bottom up. And the biblical way is to change things through these seven, seven institutions to start with the, the three-legged stool of individuals, families, and restoring the church. And we're going to look at those three in some detail today. So look, jump down to uh, Roman numeral four. That's where I left off last week. And uh, we uh, had just talked about how all seven of these institutions fell when Adam sinned. The creation itself fell. It wasn't just that uh, it wasn't just that uh, humans had wicked hearts, but everything in creation was affected by the law of sin and death. Affected the animals, the plants, all of it. Death came into all of creation, and even uh, changes within species. Mutations began to happen to make negative things, and uh, all of a sudden, certain kinds of insects began to be mosquitoes and. Uh, they mutated badly, and, and the poison ivy, and and uh, what have you. Uh, you know, th uh, things. All all of creation fell under our three insurmountable enemies: our our sin nature, the world system, and the and Satan and his demonic kingdom, his fallen angels and his demons. 
all of those fell and all of those Christ defeated. Christ defeated not only your sins. You know, the average person knows Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for your sin. And until you really get a deep revelation of what your sin is, you've yet to really receive the gospel. Until you begin to realize, wow, I am a wicked, despicable, proudful, self-righteous, know-it-all, anger management, lewd, lustful, lying, conniving. Uh, what? And I could go on for until I run out of my time in 30 minutes from now. Until you realize all that and then realize he died to break the power of that in your life. His death, burial, and resurrection obliterates that. He came to also, 1 John tells us, John is in 1 John, so I'm sure he's going to cover this verse if he continues through 1 John, is he, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that an awesome thing to think about in your own life? You go back and think about generations of what the devil has done in your family, generations of what the devil has done in our culture, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And in redemption, God wants to give you that back. What the locust has eaten, uh, all the different kinds of locusts in Joel, are, which are symbolic of, of demonic spirits and hordes of demons and so forth, God wants to restore all that. Now that takes some prayer and fasting and repentance and building Christian community and so forth. But God wants to restore it all. God doesn't want to leave it at forgiving your sins. He wants to restore progressively all the ramifications of your sins and your sin. Isn't that awesome? God didn't come just to forgive your sins so you could, you know, go to church every Sunday and give your money until you die and go to heaven. I'm all for you going to church and giving your money. But, uh, (laughs) you know, what pastor would be against that? But that's not the point. You know, he came to restore. He, the second Adam, came to, is the, the ultimate perfect man, according to how Adam was supposed to be. That's how Christ is and was. And he came to build that in you from the inside out at the level of attitudes and motivations and empowerments and knowledge and wisdom and character. And that's what the church is full of theories today. And it's full of spiritual, powerful prayer meetings. I'm telling you, one guy with character is more powerful than than 20,000 worshipers and the anointing that you get thereof. Jesus was one guy with character. Now, he also had a great deal of anointing. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to put them against each other because part of character is to carry uh, more and more anointing of the Holy Spirit. That, but that's just part of character. Character is, 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 is manifold. It's Christ itself. All right? So let's look at these three-legged stools and understanding that God wants to uh, progressively in all three of these, he wants to break that, set them free from and restore the consequences of the three insurmountable enemies. You understand what I'm saying there? 
In other words, he wants to get the world out of your life in such a way that, that you're no longer worldly. So the first one is individual or self-government. Now, again, I want to note that this, this has a great relation to the church and to the family. Uh, in an ideal world, a lot of your self-government would come from the way your, your godly parents who had a godly, loving marriage, who, who, who centered their marriage in the love of Christ, in the, in, the, in the glorification of God, and they had their home in order, and they saw themselves as stewards of, of God uh, in terms of that the, the children actually belong to the Lord, and they are stewards of the children to, uh, to raise them for the glory of God and the ways of God and so forth. In an ideal situation, a great deal of self-government would grow through the family helping you produce it. Unfortunately, we've lived in a time I, I wish I could go into more history, but basically in the 60s with the sexual revolution that followed in 1971 by the changing of divorce laws on a national level that, that caused divorce to become a common everyday thing. A lot of you probably can't imagine a time where, you know, this past week, uh, Jason and Carla and I went to Cleveland uh, and, and, we, and I, we just did a quick drive around my neighborhood, which had 101 houses, exactly, I knew because I was the paper boy. And... Uh, um, there, there were no divorced couples in, in that neighborhood. None. There was no kid who, would, who uh, would think of calling an adult something other than a very respectful term of Mr. or Mrs. Now, I'm not saying, frankly, the Christian foundations had been so eroded that a lot of that was just kind of the vestiges of a, of a Christian culture that no longer had the underpinnings, you might say. But... Um, Nevertheless, uh, you know, that's all out the window. Today, um, I would venture to say that it, over 90% of the people that, that God has brought me to work with over the last 10 or so years come from um, pretty broken families, uh, pretty dysfunctional families. Um, I've no, I'm glad to know a few exceptions to that. And uh, that's really awesome to know a few exceptions to that, but I don't know that many exceptions to that. And uh, that has a lot to do with what we're about to talk about with, with and then, frankly, the, the church preaching the gospel and discipling the converts uh, is also a foundational aspect of self-government. So let's get into individual or self-government. Uh, Colossians 1, 13 through 14, one of my favorite scriptures, he says, For he rescued or delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Notice the word rescued is the NASB. The word delivered is the ESV. And I've done Greek word studies on that word, and, and uh, I've compared about 25, 30 English translations on that word. And about 50% use the word rescued and 50% use the word delivered. But self-government comes when you get aware of your sin so deeply that you, that you cry out to be rescued. You know that I love to tell the story of the, 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 my, one of my favorite books when I was a kid called The Night the Dykes Broke. And when the dykes broke in Holland in the 50s, 
people woke up to the water rising in their house and it was already uh, so far up on the first floor that they couldn't get out to the barns where their boats were. They hadn't planned that out as, as well as they should have. And uh, so they were in the, on the second floor with the water coming up and they were like, what can we do? Well, they had to go to the attic. And when they got in the attic, they realized that our attic is still way lower than the dikes. So uh, we, need to, we need to start busting the boards out and get on top of the roof. And then we, they sat on the peaks of the roof, hoping that someone would rescue them before the house was engulfed with the floodwaters. And you either got rescued or you didn't get rescued. And I say this over and over again, but uh, I often tell people, please go back and reread Romans and Galatians. Uh, please reread Jesus and Matthew 5 and the, Jesus with the, the rich young ruler. Whatever it takes, get help, cry out to God to deepen your understanding of your sin. You weren't sick in your trespasses. You were dead. Now, the, my first Christian encounter with death was my, the, my little brother's funeral. We got to visit his gravesite this week. But I walked in, and I saw him in the casket, and I just realized the essence of him was gone. This was the shell. His spirit and his soul were with the Lord. And he didn't jump up to greet me. And I didn't say, let's go swimming like we did most every day, or let's go play, play some baseball in the backyard. All that was gone. When Jesus said, approached Lazarus, I love how he wept, be just even though he knew what he was about to do was raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still wept. You ever think about that? Because deep inside, he knew this was not intended to be. Man was not intended to die in the first place. Death came with sin. And Jesus relationally had such a deep relationship with not only Lazarus, but his sisters, Martha and Mary, that he felt their grief and he felt their pain. And he wept with them even though he knew he was about to say, Lazarus, come forth. But guess what? When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus didn't have the ability to say, I don't know. It's kind of cool in here or whatever. You know, God's word is recreative. So what... Uh, what if you're if you're actually born again and if you're in a process of being recreated in the image of God which is what every Christian is walking toward I heard John mention first John 3 3 in his uh, sermon I got him on CD now so I'm listening to him a lot more but uh, got he, he was talking about first John 3 that everyone who uh, uh, we know that when we see him we will be like him and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. A Christian is a person who's seeking to know the Lord, to love the Lord. Uh, we love because he first loved us, who is constantly thinking about God's grace so that we can respond out of grace and out of rest and not out of performance and not out of trying to be accepted by by doing the right things, but just as we rest in the, in the grace of who he is and we celebrate the grace of who he is, we are also uh, being conformed to his image. And it's the mystery of grace is that he's the one doing it, yet we somehow, he also motivates us to seek it and, and so forth. Grace begets grace and grace is upon grace and grace uh, gets multiplied. We grow in grace. But 
all of this starts with what uh, theologians call the effectual call of the gospel. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, that wasn't on Lazarus' plan. Lazarus didn't come out, and they, you remember Jesus said, take the bandages off of him, and Lazarus didn't say, I've been seeking for truth all my life, and I finally came to know the Lord, and I resurrected myself, and so forth. That's kind of what we do in churches today, right? Like, I've been seeking, I've been on this long search for truth, and finally I found Jesus. Nonsense. You were dead. You weren't looking for truth. At best, you were indifferent to truth. You were all about self. Now, this is important. Uh, the, the effectual call of the gospel. Let's look at John 6, 44 real quick. John 6 and verse 44, Jesus said, no one, whenever, by the way, I underline circle, asterisk, highlight, uh, speaking tongues over, every time I see words like each one, anyone, no one, everyone, because part of, the, part of what we're all struggling against is sin is lies, sin is deceptions. Demonic spirit, a demonic spirit is a lying motivation, it's a lying attitude, it's a lying belief system inside ourselves. And one of the things that we all struggle with is somehow we're the exception to no one. When it says no sin has overtaken you, but is common to man, we think we're the exception to that. I'm the only one who's ever done whatever terrible thing we do. Nonsense. No one, no one, no one. Look up the Greek and, and you know, you'll find out it means no one, not a single one. There's no exceptions. You're not the exception. I'm not the exception. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You are here today because God drew you. Now, he used uh, people he introduced you to that had the gospel in them uh, and spoke the gospel to you. He used circumstances in your life to get your attention. You were running from him, and and you, uh, if you couldn't get him off your back altogether, then you were probably religious and went to church, and and you uh, had attitudes like God got a good deal when He got you, and uh, boy, you're you're such a good Christian. You just you you know the church is really lucky to have you, and and uh, I just need you know I just need a little cleaning up. I don't need like a major overhaul. I'm basically a pretty good Christian. You had all that going on if you couldn't shake God off altogether and be an agnostic or an atheist. you had, In other words, if the people who can't shake God off altogether, because we're all born with our spirit knowing there's a God and the creation speaks, the heavens tell the glory of God and so forth. And there are some people who God has drawn them far enough that they're what some theologians call pre-evangelized. Most people who come to Grace Christian Fellowship are, that think they're wonderful Christians and so forth are really more pre-evangelized than really converted to Christ, actually. And that's just the nature of our culture right now and the, and the, the lack of penetrate, penetration of the gospel in terms of the depth of conviction of sin and, and many other issues. So um, it's, it's totally the Lord that draws you in the first place. John 16, 7 through 13, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, well, first of all, in John 15, 26, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bear witness of me. Uh, 
In John 16, 7 through 13, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I remember uh, my good friend, Pastor Brown, he was asked to give a, a speech on evangelism at the, Na- the Assemblies of God's National Gathering. And he uh, talked to me first ahead of time, and he said, Greg, we all know that people come forward at our altar calls, and no one goes on to be a Christian or read the Bible or study it or, or join the church or whatever. Uh, that almost never happens. It's actually, uh, statistics are that somewhere between 3 and 5% of people who receive Christ and who pray the sinner's prayer actually go on to show any sign that they really were converted to Christianity, such as joining a Bible study or, or a church or studying the Bible or changing their lifestyle or any of the things you look at as the vital signs of life. I mean, there's national studies done on this by lots of organizations. And he said, what do, you, what do you think is, you know, if you had to pick one missing element, what would it be? And I said, conviction. And uh, he agreed with that. In fact, I heard it in the sermon the next Sunday. Uh, and he even footnoted me, which was rare. I didn't care for that, but that's okay. Um, conviction. The truth of the matter is, the word conviction also means convinced. If you're convinced, if you're, you have more than theoretical knowledge of the basic facts of the gospel, if they're convincing you in your inner being and such, you know if you're convinced. You're all sitting on these, on these pews right now because you're convinced they're going to hold your body weight up. If you thought we had such a bad problem with termites that the, that the pew was going to fall down, You'd check it out a little more thoroughly before you plopped your weight on. You put your weight on something when you're convinced. So um, this is important. The effectual call of the gospel. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We all know that verse, right? Is there anyone who doesn't know that verse by heart? Like that's like... One of the first ones you memorize when you become a Christian, right? That God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So God works sovereignly in all the mess-ups in your life, many of which happen in many cases, like we were talking about the religious people and so forth. Many times when you are religious and so forth, the, all the real screw-ups and mess-ups will happen after you've been religious for a certain amount of time because God's wanting to... to to draw you into the difference between reality of walking with Christ and and false religion. And you can have false religion and be a part of Grace Christian Fellowship or any other church, really. You can't. But God uses circumstances in your life, right? We all know that. But did you ever consider that Romans 8.28 is right before Romans 8.29 and and Romans 8.30, and they're, they're actually a continuing thought? So God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God are called according to his purpose for, whenever you see for, it's redefining what it just said, right? For whom he foreknew, that would be you, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he, so, so uh, God has predestined that he's going to conform many to the image of his son and that Jesus will be the first 
actual Adam that was supposed to be, that lived like Adam is supposed to live. He'll be the first human that was really fully human in, in carrying the image of God correctly and so forth. And he would give birth to many brethren who would, who would join him on that journey. In whom he predestined, he also called. You're not here because you were seeking truth. He called you. In whom he called, he also justified. In whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I wish I could deal with a little bit of uh, N.T. Wright's view of justification versus uh, the modern views, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I, what I'm just trying to say is this. Self-government begins with the effectual call of the gospel. You were held captive by Satan to do his will. The most goody two-shoes guy who, you know, went to church all your life. You never smoked weed. You never stole anything, a car. You never disobeyed your parents or whatever you want to consider being a goody two-shoes is about was full of sin. You, they were dead. You were dead. You know, uh, self-righteousness itself is one of the sins that Jesus gives the most attention to because it's the most blinding. The Pharisees were full of it, and they thought they could see that's why their sin yet remained and why they remained blind. Uh, go back on the podcast and listen to John's uh, message on blindness. And uh, he alludes to John 9, among other things there. Um, secondly, regeneration and conversion. Uh, regeneration, I, I'm, I'm really running out of time, so and I, I don't know if I want to give another week to this, so I'm going to try to speed up here a little bit. Regeneration uh, deals with the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it, it, it's all about your spirit coming alive. It's not whether you prayed the sinner's prayer in the right atmosphere with the right music and the right lights and, and all this. It's about whether your spirit was quickened. Jesus said there a time will come, and now is, John 5, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's about can you start hearing God? When you read the Bible, does God speak to you? The first, the most neglected form of prayer in our day and age is reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is the ultimate communion with God because he's speaking out of the words of Scripture to your spirit and your mind, to your heart, to your affections. If you want to really love the Lord, love the Scripture. Jesus, the living word of God, is primarily found through the written word of God. I believe in finding him in, his, in the church and in can, the communion supper and in the Lord's day. I, I believe in all that. I believe in find, that, that you need the Holy Spirit to find Jesus. But the Holy Spirit will primarily help you find the, the living word of God as you, in the Holy Spirit, read and listen to and commune with the written word of God. You want to know the Lord? Be more like uh Mary, sit at the Lord's feet listening to his word, and don't let a thousand distractions take you away from it. I'll bet if any one of you would, at the end of the day, make a list of what happened in this regard, and at the end of the week look at it, 
most of the time you had set apart to read God's word was stolen by your allowing distractions that you could have taken dominion over. Simply by turning off your cell phone or uh, taking Jesus seriously to go into an inner room, have a secret place. Do you have a secret place to read the word? One of the most fruitful times of my life, my secret place to read the word was in my car. And I bought a thing that they they use for um, treadmills and stuff that you can put a book on. And uh, I would take uh, Elizabeth and Victor and I don't know, remember who else, to, to school in the morning at 7 o'clock. And then I would drive downtown and sit outside the Y. And from about 7.15 to 10 a.m., I would just read the Bible. I remember in the wintertime, I used to have to turn my car on about every 15 minutes for a couple minutes to warm it back up. Uh, sometimes I would go to Eastwood Lake and just park in such a way that I'm facing the little pond with the ducks, going a little creation around here is so good, and just read the Bible for three or four hours. No cell phone, and nobody knows where I'm at. Well, I'm obviously not going to make it through all this stuff, so I'm just going to—I'm really going to just focus in on the the uh, the individual today. Do you understand that you were dead? You, your spirit has to be reborn. With it, not only is the ability to commune with God, but you, bad company corrupts good morals, and you become like whoever you spend time with. So the first and foremost thing a Christian wants to do is be alone with God. I talked, uh, gave a little, about 20 minute, maybe even closer to 30 minute little talk Friday night about what, you know, I I started with asking the question of what did Jesus primarily do in in the gospels? And everyone said, heal people, cast out demons, preach the gospel, disciple, you know, nobody brought out that it says over and over and over again that he went to a lonely place to pray. Catherine finally brought it out, but uh, there was around 20 other things said before we got to that one. But the, the Gospels say that over and over and over again. He would often go to a lonely place to pray. And he was the Word of God, and he grew up in a culture where you memorize most of the Old Testament. I don't know if he had scrolls with him, but he had the ability to recite the Scripture while he was praying to himself because he knew it by heart. Believe me, uh, when regeneration happens, a baby is hungry. A baby nurses like a pureborn babe long for the pure milk of the word. It scares the heck out of me. Uh, you know, we were at a leaders meeting and certain people were teasing me that I always make an appeal to read the word like every message. And uh, Jason came to my defense and said, and he'll probably stop when he doesn't need to anymore. It scares the heck out of me that I still that I need to. When I ask, uh, I, I go through and ask lots of people all the time, how's your relationship with the scriptures? Some have never even read the whole New Testament. Others have n- not read any of the Old Testament. Uh, there, there's Christians who've been Christians longer than, you know, I understand if you've been a Christian longer, less than three or four months, maybe less than six months, if you haven't read the whole New Testament. Uh If you've been a Christian longer than six months and haven't read the whole New Testament, something's wrong. There's something really, really wrong with your understanding of God. 
Regeneration changes your motivations, it changes your attitudes, it changes your purpose. If you don't find, I, I often tell this story, I was reading the word in my bed when I was 17, and I'd been a Christian, I don't know, a few months, and, and God was dealing with me about certain sins in my life, and and uh, I'm reading away, and it's getting late, so I, I set my Bible on the nightstand, turned off the light, and slid under the covers, and I said, sorry. I found myself saying, Lord, I just want to do what's right. I just want to do what pleases you. I just want to know you and live the way you want me to live. And I actually sat back up, turned the light back on, because I was so surprised that that came out of my heart. Because, like, that wasn't high on my agenda in my pre-Christian days. That wasn't on your agenda at all. If you are born again, you should be having those kinds of experiences. You should have other experiences like... like uh, like uh, Peter had when, G when Jesus manifested his glory and in the, in the, when he told him to go back and fish and they got so many fish they had to call the other boats. Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Is there times where you're in the presence of God and you're like, God, you're so holy and I am so not. <laughs> you know, and I think, I, I think you got the wrong guy here. You know, I can remember as a young Christian thinking, I'm in this on-fire fellowship, and the, all these people are in love with Jesus so much, I don't fit in here. Well, you you know what? That wasn't true, but it's actually, that was a needful thought to uh, to get acclimated to the gospel and the truth. The fact is, you don't fit in here as of yourself. We're all hypocrites. This is the hypocrite church that hopefully follows grace, Christian fellowship, and we just are here because we all admit we're hypocrites. <laughs> you know, that we're the first church of hypocrites who are crying out to God to save us from that. Well, I'm going to try to see if I can even get through this. Um, probably can't get through the individual. Um, conversion... It's important that you, does everyone get the idea that regeneration is a rebirth of your spirit whereby you can hear the voice of God? And one of the primary signs of that is you're, you're going to hunger for fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, the people of God, and especially with the scriptures. Conversion means turning. Conversion has two ingredients. One is repentance and the other is trust. I hate the word faith anymore because we've destroyed that word, but it is faith, it's belief, but it's the biblical view of faith, which is to trust in, cling to, rely on, follow, even to the point of death, to, to daily be saying, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. To daily go to our crosses. Galatians 2.20 is a lifestyle. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's our lifestyle as a Christian. I always love when young Christians go, well, I just want to make Jesus Lord, but I just keep falling and so forth. And good, because you're now starting to get humble so you can begin to change your trust from you to him. You can change your power center from you to him. You can change your understanding center from you to him. And you can't do that without changing it from you to his word. 
Conversion is turning. And I, if you, uh, if I would encourage you to get a hold of a teaching I did on repentance. It's not on, it's not on the website. It was done a couple summers ago, but I have a very thorough outline and I gave eight definitions, all of which add up to a full definition of repentance, eight statements. But the eighth one is the most important. Repentance is not just turning away from, that's what we think, like I got to repent from lust or whatever, but it's primarily a turning toward the, the pursuit in, of loving and knowing God. Repentance is a turning toward God. You know, if your, your goal is to go to Florida and you accidentally get on 75 and you're going, you think you're going south, but you're really going north and you see Lima, and then you see Bowling Green and then Toledo and then Detroit. And you go, oh, <laughs> this is not going to get me to Florida. It doesn't do you any good just to get off, get gas and go to Denny's and have some food and say, glad I'm not going the wrong way anymore. Right? That's really what most of us relate to repentance. I got to stop doing this, stop doing that. Listen, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, maybe I'll continue this. Do you understand that like this three-legged stool is what the kingdom of God is all about? We, we cannot go out and change the world politically or change media uh, or change civil government, uh, or, or change educational systems when we're half changed ourselves. Whatever we influence in those other areas will grow out of how far we've changed the three-legged stool. If it takes three generations to build a really biblical church, it will be well worth the time and effort. You know, what we're doing is a hard sell right now. I fully appreciate that. But what we're doing is the salvation of the world. Eventually, all churches will take into account all these kinds of things and more. Amen.